Welcome everybody to the Hopeful Majority, episode number five, 4th of July special. I'm your host, Manu Meal. Tomorrow is the 4th of July, which is why the question of today's episode, is America possible? And our guest will be Sophie Barron, an amazing young leader in the country, leading the fight on how we have better conversations and dialogues. And she's actually going to come on for us to have a productive conversation about how to have very difficult conversations in extraordinarily divided times. Remember, every week, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content. If you missed last week's conversation, we actually talk about the ambitious experiment that is America. Because remember, we in the hopeful majority are trying to push aside labels to have a conversation, to have dialogues, not just for the purpose of Kumbaya, but for the purpose of actually pushing this experiment forward. It's time for us to lead. Remember, every week, we're fighting outrage, we're building nuance. Join us. Let's get on with episode number five. Well, as we noted in the introduction, this is the 4th of July special. Tomorrow, we actually celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And believe it or not, I did some homework right before this episode. The lead author of the Declaration of Independence, one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, believe it or not, was 33 years old when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. James Madison, 25. Alexander Hamilton, 21. James Monroe, 18. John Adams, 40. Washington, George Washington, 44 years old, six years, seven years younger than my dad. I just wanted to start off with that because I think we oftentimes forget that it is possible. This experiment is not only possible, but has been performed since the founding by people, everyday folks that were just like us, and importantly, people in my generation, I'm 24 years old, this stuff is not out of reach. In fact, it is right within your grasp that to get involved, to get active requires us to recognize that America is only possible because of us. Question of the show as we started was, is America possible? And I believe that America is only possible with one condition. And that one condition is whether or not the people within this experiment, the people that inherit this experiment, those of us that call this place home, believe it is possible. America is only possible if those that inhabit this experiment believe it is possible. And now you're going to say, Manu, that sounds like hokey pokey BS. That sounds like some vacuous, optimistic platitude. Well, let me tell you something. Not only do I not think it's a, it's a vacuous platitude, but I think that for us to actually realize the promise of this experiment, for us to bring as many people along with us as possible, for us to speak to our conservative brothers and sisters and our liberal brothers and sisters, for us to stitch together an experiment, the most ambitious experiment, as we talked about in the last episode, episode four with Isabel Brown, it is only possible if we reignite that sense of belief. And so this episode is specifically about how we as Americans, empower ourselves with a sense of agency, empower ourselves with a belief that the next 248 years can still be written, that the American story is still being drafted, that you are the only reason this place is possible. And I think that is not only how we celebrate 4th of July, but that is how we think about the legacy of this experiment, how we improve upon both its flaws and appreciate and admire the beauty and the belief in human nature that this experiment's ideals rest upon. So the goal of this episode, how do we actually restore that sense of agency and empowerment within ourselves? And secondly, given that sense of knowledge and appreciation, how do we act? 
So question number one, how do we actually restore that sense of agency and belief? I think it's very simple. A lot of people in my generation, a lot of people writ large, most of us, most of us that are listening, frankly, don't even care about politics. Most of us don't even want to touch the thing. Because a lot of us either don't think anything happens if we get involved, or importantly, those of us that are involved have just succumbed to a deep sense of cynicism and pessimism. You know what I'm talking about. We believe that, well, you know, we can tell ourselves these different things, but fact is the American story is written and we're just inheriting it. The answer to giving ourselves a sense of agency and empowerment is to crack that narrative. It's change the narrative. And here's how we change the narrative. I believe that the American experiment is just getting started. And you're going to say, well, that sounds, again, like another vacuous platitude. 2026, the United States is going to turn 250 years old. Or some might say 250 years young. We're going to go through a 250th anniversary as a country, as an experiment, as the most ambitious democratic experiment. Someone that's 24 years old, that's a really big number. 250? I mean, man, that's old. I'm like, American story is already written. And then I did some Googling to contextualize this moment, to contextualize 250. What does that actually mean in the scope of societies? Because I think with the advent of social media, with our sort of five-second attention span, we live in the moment we don't have the perspective. We live in the moment we don't have the perspective. So I was like, let me give myself some perspective. So I did some research. The Chinese empire, very simple Googling. So I might be wrong in the exact numbers, but you get the point. The Chinese empire, I learned, as for 1,800 years. The Roman Empire lasts for 1,200 years. Athenian democracy lasts for give or take 400 years. And we're at 250. We're not at the end of the American experiment. We're at the beginning. We're maybe in chapter one or two. Depends on how long the books are that you read. In the context of, of civilizations and societies, America is not only young, but our democracy is ripe for action. It is ripe for continuous evolution. Thomas Jefferson once wrote and talked about the fact that he believes that democracy is remade with every generation. 250 in the scope of human history and scope of civilization is a glimpse. And the reason why I think it's important for us to frame it in that way is because when we recognize that we're not at the end, but just the beginning, that's the spark that gave me the sense of optimism, urgency, hope to push forward. Because in fact, if we believe that the American story is still being written and not that it has been written, then suddenly we stop viewing ourselves as inheritors of an experiment. And we start looking at ourselves as actors, as leaders, that to lead this experiment, it requires us that America's story has not been written, which means it is still possible. It is still possible. And when you say, what is it? Very clearly, here's what I mean. I mean, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, the enlightenment ideals. I mean, this notion, e pluribus unum, out of many, one, this notion and understanding that we are not at the end of the story, but at the beginning, that we have to recognize that we are writing the prescripts of what humanity could look like. As Thomas Paine said, as I said in the last episode, the cause of humankind is America. Not because of some weird American exceptionalism, but because of this recognition that the ideals that we're advocating for, especially at this moment, at least hope and aspire to give everybody a sense of belonging.
And the only way we get that sense of belonging, the only way we create that society and realize that experiment, this gets to question number two. Well, how do we act? How do we get that sense of belonging? How do we move from here? Tomorrow's 4th of July. Well, Manu, what next? I feel that sense of empowerment. What do we do next? Well, I think we're, we've, we face a choice. We face a choice. As we've always talked about in this hopeful majority, this is not about unification, moderate centrism. This is not about bringing the left and right together. We're not in an ideological fight. We're in a temperamental fight. We're in a fight between mindsets. We face two choices. There's a divide. The divide I don't think is left or right. I think the divide we face is between cynicism, tribalism, and exclusion, and the alternative path of hope, empathy, and inclusion. We face a choice between either being open-minded or closed-minded. We face a choice between either bringing people in or pushing people out. We face a choice between embracing freedom and giving into the submissiveness of the human spirit. We face a choice between being bridge builders and being bridge burners. We face a choice. And that is how we conclude this part of this episode, the 4th of July episode, is because I believe that the founders had always wanted Americans to act in a way that allows us to realize our highest ideals, that allows us to push, evolve, and importantly, with a certain temperament mindset. And bridge building, listening to each other, talking to each other, that sounds naive. That sounds like it's preserving the status quo. It sounds like you're being complicit in, in all the problems that exist. But no, in fact, I think history shows us that when we think about actually creating change, that bridge building, listening to people that are different than us, talking to people that are different than us, the mindset, the temperament that gets us to the promised land that Dr. King talked about, that mindset has been the backbone of every successful social experiment and social change movement in the 20th century from Mahatma Gandhi in 1945 in the Salt Marches to Dr. King in the Civil Rights Movement in the 60s to Mandela. South Africa, bridge building, listening to people, creating space, building movements that don't push people out, but try to empathize and listen, and understand to create a coalition that creates real progress, and real change. And I don't mean this from a liberal standpoint. I mean this from a standpoint of team human, that this is a theory of change. We are in a battle between how we realize the American experiment. You suddenly feel empowered. You want to act. The question is how. Because let me tell you something. I think we live in a moment where there is counterproductive action and productive action. And I think the question, and I would posit, people in the hopeful majority, the most of us, are willing to embrace productive action. We're willing to embrace the bridge mindset. We're willing to embrace the ability to listen to people, not for the hope of necessarily changing their mind, but for the hope of understanding their pain so that we can actually build upon what we have. And importantly, young people will write the next chapter of this country, this experiment. So the question is are we ready? Are we ready to embrace the fact that America is young? We're, two, we're going to be 250 years young, that America is not at the end of the story, but that American story is just beginning. That we're not in chapter five, six, we're in chapter two or three. That it's time to think about how we actually act and engage. And to that call, I say yes. I say yes. And we say yes. I think most importantly, the best way we celebrate the 4th of July tomorrow is to remember that the American story is just getting started. 250 years can sound old to many, but in fact, in the span of human history, it's young.
We're not inheritors of this experiment. We lead this experiment. We remember and recognize that we embody a sense of spirit and ethos that has pushed movements forward. And that is what the American story is about. So let's get on with our conversation with Sophie Barron to actually talk about how we have those very productive and difficult conversations in highly divided times. Sophie Barron, welcome to the Hopeful Majority. Manu, this is the greatest honor of of my summer, of my <laughs> year. Thank you for having me. Uh, for the record, I did not have to... Uh, bribe Sophie to make that compliment though but but I will return you a compliment it's already obviously evident I welcome you to the hopeful majority I already feel hopeful you've got an amazing smile on and this is where I want to go first the first time I ever met you Sophie the first I'll tell you the first thing and the other day we were talking with our marketing folks and Jess our mutual friend and I were debriefing and we were talking about our work I said the first thing that comes to mind whenever I think of Sophie is just the amount of positivity that you exude. And I'm sure on some days it's harder to exude and on other days it's much easier to exude. But where does your positivity come from? Well, first of all, that is so kind of you to say. I This may sound cliche, but I really think it's just from my upbringing. I mean, I'm from the Midwest, Wichita, Kansas, and everyone there just, I don't know, is incredibly optimistic. It's the type of place where you smile at someone on the sidewalk. If there's a bunch of traffic, people say, no, you go, no, you go. And that's where the traffic comes from. So I think it's just from my my upbringing in the Midwest that gave me certain values and channeled that optimism. But, but hey, why, you're, you're pretty optimistic yourself. I, I, I would say so. But I, I want to ask you like, well, actually, let me ask you, do you think there's a difference between hope and optimism? Yes. Yes. To me, I think sometimes that hope is, hope has a little bit more weight behind it, in my opinion. Um, Whereas I feel like optimism feels like the shell of it, if that makes sense. Like, I think I can be optimistic without hope and vice versa. But I, I don't know, I feel like in order to comport myself and build the world that I'm trying to build, I think it requires a certain degree of optimism that will hopefully leave people with hope. But what are your thoughts? Well, I know you'd mentioned that I I sometimes appear pretty optimistic, but I would say in something I've noticed, at least, I don't know if this is the case with you, but uh, I've yet to meet somebody that is 100% all the time hopeful and optimistic. I think even most hopeful people uh, exude and, and oftentimes demonstrate optimism and hope but it feels like some days because we're human it just sucks and like today for example today morning i got up i was super energized i was engaged and then i went on instagram and saw my comment section which i'm sure you deal with a lot too and i was like oh man like how how do you how do you sort of deal with uh how do you how do you sort of navigate those those sort of valleys and hills of optimism and hope? How do you navigate that um, so that in general you show up with a smile? In general, you show up with a desire to make people around you feel better? I don't know if I have all the answers, um, but I I will say that recently I had an amazing conversation on our show with this incredible mentor of mine. Her name is Kareth Foster. And I, I asked her something similar and her response was, when something comes your way unexpected for you, maybe this morning it was seeing your comment section and it immediately had the ability to change the course of your day, you have to weigh for yourself where that falls on a one to 10 scale. Were, were those comments 
maybe what they were feeling like an eight, but in reality, they were like a two. And it's important not to let the ones and the twos run your life because how are you going to have the energy and the stamina to handle the nines and the tens? So for me, I think it's a matter of weighing for yourself what is worth your energy, what is not. And for me, I think it's a lot of tuning out the noise. We are so oversaturated these days by content, by media, by voices, by opinions. And for me, I think it's important to use some sort of filter system. And I think it's subjective to each person. But you have to weigh for yourself what is worth your energy and what is not. And for me, I I have a hard time determining what is and what isn't. But I think that's what puts a smile on my face is knowing when when it's worth my energy, you know? Well, sh- shout out to, to Kareth, our, our mutual friend. And what's interesting about this is for anybody that's listening that hasn't heard of Sophie, Sophie runs an organization, a show called The Conversationalist, where Sophie's always asking the questions. So as you noticed when I asked her the questions, she said, I don't have all the answers and then deflected to a conversation. So this, I'm going to, for the first 15, 20 minutes, purposefully keep this conversation on you because you're on the 4th of July episode special, whatever you want to call it. Tomorrow is the 4th of July, believe it or not. And uh, the the question that I want to, again, focus on you for a second is because I think a lot of people in the hopeful majority are looking for examples. And importantly, they're trying to understand what drives people like you, right? And so I'm going to go back to you for a second and ask you, you mentioned those Midwestern roots, went to college, I assume. Um, what next? What happened? Oh my gosh, we're skipping the entire first half of my life here, going straight to college. Okay, we could um, we could, or we could go to the first half wherever you want to spend your time. Well, I think it's important just to touch on where I'm from because that really led to what I do now. Please, um, I mentioned being incredibly grateful for my Midwestern values, but I have to be honest, Manu, there were times growing up in the Midwest where I felt particularly challenged. I I grew up different from most of my peers. And I think it became apparent very early on because I went to the same school from K through 12, grew up with the same people. And the thing that made me different from everyone else was that I was the only Jew in my grade. And this carried, you know, an exciting responsibility to help educate my friends about what it means to be Jewish. But there were also times where I really felt left out and without a voice. And when I went to college, I finally followed the yellow brick road to the East Coast. I realized that there were so many other people out there that were like me. And once I got to school, I tried so desperately to belong because I thought my whole life, as soon as I got out of that bubble in the Midwest and found people who looked like me and thought like me, I would truly feel belonging. But I'm sure as you know how the story goes, that was not the case. In what ways as the only Jew in your school, did you feel different? There were so many moments throughout the year on a typical school year where it became very apparent that I was the only one. So for example, I loved to sing. I was in choir. I was in all of the musicals. And every year at the end of the year, we would put on a concert and it was always the Christmas concert, even though it was deemed the holiday concert. And all of the songs we would sing in choir made reference to Jesus and all of these themes that go somewhat against my religion to some degree. Um, And I would always take those moments to not sing a few words in those songs because it felt a little bit uncomfortable to me and people would notice. Or for example, at the beginning of every school gathering, um, the, the headmaster or the principal would have everyone bow their heads and pray. 
and I would be the only one who left their head up. Or there were moments, maybe even in seventh grade, when we started covering World War II and we dipped into the Holocaust. And every time my seventh grade history teacher made mention of the word Jew, Jewish, Israel, Holocaust, anything, my classmates would physically turn their heads and look at me. And there was a lot of discomfort there. And I think my response to that was just to continue on. I didn't really have the tools or the resources to have the conversations that I think would have really helped my classmates understand me. And I think so much of that feeling of being misunderstood led me to the work that I do now so that other people who may feel like the odd one out or feel without a voice have the ability to to be themselves in conversation to help others and the world around them understand who they are. What's so interesting about learning about both the the sense of exclusion, fear, uh, singling out that you felt was tomorrow with 4th of July and so many Americans trying to grapple with a sense of identity, a sense of purpose. There seems to be a lot of resentment in in society. What I'm curious about is it seems, and I'm making an assumption, that that feeling of being isolated did not necessarily bring out resentment and anger, but more sort of a desire to belong and fit in. Um, is that accurate? And importantly, if so, why did it not make you resentful? Um, why did it not give you this feeling of anger? Like, why do you now do this thing called the conversations where you're creating space for others when for so long you felt excluded? I think for so much of my upbringing, my default was to sweep it under the rug. So in reality, I think a lot of my processing about my childhood happened when I left the Midwest. So while I wasn't resentful in the moment or angry in the moment, there were times that were pretty hurtful where there were blatant anti-Semitic moments that made me feel incredibly hurt. But I think because I lacked the language and the tools and the resources to really reconcile with that, you know, this is at a time when therapy wasn't really universal and it wasn't encouraged. And so I didn't really have a place to go or a place to process what was happening and to start those conversations. So Yes, I think you're right. I, I don't think that's an assumption. I think it was completely fair to say that I, I was not resentful or angry. But when I went to college, I think in realizing that I did want to focus my energy on belonging, I realized kind of the ultimate light bulb moment of my life thus far, which was once I really found that belonging in every Jewish community under the sun, from Jewish acapella to the Jewish sorority, even found a Jewish boyfriend. My parents were thrilled for me. Um, I realized that one day when I was walking through campus, it wasn't just me who was doing this with my identity group, but every single person who I had maybe met in line at the dining hall or in a classroom, they were doing the same exact thing, but with their respective group. And it was almost like that scene in High School Musical, Stick to the Status Quo, where everyone was at their separate lunch tables saying, you know, don't, don't change that, don't rock the boat. And there was just something inside of me that felt super unsettled in realizing that maybe I actually felt like I belonged more when I was in Wichita, when I was surrounded with people who helped inform who I am, because I think I realized my identity in contrast to others. 
And that paradox led me to think, okay, well, maybe there's work to be done around making everyone else have this aha moment. Because what is the point of life if you're not surrounding yourself with people who will challenge your worldview? And I think that contrast of leaving the Midwest, going to the East Coast and realizing that I had actually taken for granted my upbringing in Wichita led me to realize that I really wanted to spend the rest of my life creating spaces for other young people to A, never have to feel the way that I felt growing up, but B, actually have the opportunity to challenge themselves and the world that they exist in, in a similar way to how I did growing up in the Midwest. So I know you asked me before the show whether or not this is going to be a conversation or just an interview where I ask you questions. And then I was like, how could I say to the conversation queen that this is just going to be me asking questions? But this will now, but this will, no, but this will now turn into me asking you questions because I think your story is fascinating. It deserves to be heard. And I think oftentimes you do such a good job of creating space for others. So I want to create space for you. And the reason why I want to do that is because you mentioned the term belonging. What does that word mean to you? Because it seems like we're in this odd moment today where everybody says, let's belong, let's be included. Everybody talks about diversity and equity and inclusion, some in the political realm with called DEI. And yet the Surgeon General just came out with a report that deemed loneliness as the biggest epidemic in America, this feeling of alienation. Could you sort of try and square the situation and, and try and work with me in parsing out what is going on? I am by no means an expert, and I will always qualify what I share with that, but I am a huge fan. Don't of worry, I'm Brown. hosting this show. It's already, that's the biggest, that's the biggest asterisk to, to demonstrate this is not a show of experts. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I think my notion of belonging really stems from being a disciple of Brene Brown. Are you familiar with her work at all? I am, but could you, for the audience, uh, maybe just give a quick primer? Absolutely. She is a brilliant thought leader whose research and work really revolves around courage and vulnerability. And one of her books called Braving the Wilderness puts this entire conversation of belonging into question. And it's ironic, Manu, that you bring up that we are amidst a loneliness epidemic because I actually understand belonging now to mean belonging to yourself. I think so often we grow up trying to, to fit into every group, every club, every community. And we think that if we surround ourselves with people, we will feel that belonging. But Brene posits that ultimately, no matter what life throws at you, no matter where you go and how you navigate the world, you have to be able to brave that wilderness by being completely firm in who you are. And once you can give that to yourself, you will belong no matter where you go. So for me, that's how I understand belonging is needing to understand myself, my voice, my values, my, my likes, my dislikes, my boundaries. And once I can truly understand who I am and how I fit into the world, I will be able to find that true belonging no matter where I go, because ultimately I belong to myself. But I'm still learning and growing. I mean, w what are your thoughts? I mean, I think the the difficulty that I think I think you're 100 percent right about braving the wilderness and thinking about how we as individuals sort of fit into society. But I feel like a big part of that is you have to have some sense of confidence or security in yourself. It almost seems like what you're talking about there, at least the way I hear it, Sophie, is that we as individuals need to feel 
a sense of confidence and security and that we need to find that security within ourselves. Because if we as individuals don't see ourselves as individuals, then how can we create space for others? Is that, is that, does that track? That's how I hear that. Minus maybe the tendency to then shut off yourself to other people's ideas and worldviews. I think that's the first step. You have to find your voice and find a way to belong to yourself to navigate the world. But I don't think that we should encapsulate ourselves into some sort of silo where we then shut off ourselves from the rest of the world. That's interesting. How do you balance? um, And just before, this is episode number five, before the 4th of July, the last four episodes for anybody listening, we had some amazing people on like John Wood Jr., Monica Guzman, my friend Isabel Brown, an amazing professor named Jeremy Suri. And we all actually kind of circled this. And it seems like a, a general sort of trend in these conversations, which is how do you square individuality with being open-minded? How do you, how do you sort of hold, as you're saying, how do you see yourself as an individual but at the same time, and, and feel valid in your, your, as we say, truth. And at the same time, create space for what might be other people's truths. I think it all goes We're back getting at the heart of the issues. I, I know. I mean, this is, I think, why you and I both get out of bed every day, because we want to foster that value within people. But I think it comes with some sort of intrinsic desire to be a part of a greater whole. I think so often when we talk about America and if we're, you know, putting this out tomorrow for July 4th, it's important to recognize that a lot of the narrative of our country places such an emphasis on individualism. But I think oftentimes we're a bit fraught when we think of ourselves as only individuals. And I think it's important at some point in our upbringings or the way in which we raise the next generation to help people understand that there has to be some sort of push and pull. There's, there's a back and forth. There has to be some sort of pendulum shift where it's be heard and hear others. You know, find your voice and let others find theirs. Create spaces for yourself while also letting other people create their own spaces. And I think oftentimes we don't finish that second half of that equation. That's the way I conceptualize it and thinking that Ultimately, we have to raise people and we have to empower others around us to know that it's not just you. The world is so vast. And yes, we can prize it, but it is not just for us. And I think a bit of collectivism, a little bit of spice there into the larger mixing bowl, I think is the secret sauce that we're missing. You know, oftentimes we say, you know, you have two ears and a mouth for a reason. I think it's important to remember that you use your voice, but you also listen to others with the same fiery passion that you personally feel for being heard. Just yesterday night, I had a dinner with a with an old college friend of mine, and uh, he's somebody that will often sort of loves the work that we would collectively say is bridging conversations, dialogue, and yet will oftentimes push back and say, well, how do we create space for others uh, when we might perceive those folks is, let's say, perpetrating a certain sense of oppression. Let's take your childhood. You know, how how did you create space or why why should you, if, if you should, create space for those people that made you feel like the only Jew in the classroom? Like what what's so that that's oftentimes I think the pushback that you and I get for doing this work. And I'm just Ooh. curious, you know, anybody that is in the hopeful majority, oftentimes the reason why most of us are just silent and are called oftentimes exhaust, exhausted majorities because you just hear these very loud voices that are like, you know, 
that's that's not only uh, a, a, an act of complicity, but it's actually legitimizing the oppression that people might feel. How do you square again conflicting truths? How do you square that 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 very difficult thorny thing that comes up in I'm sure almost every conversation you have? I'm taking us back to Wichita for a sec. Okay. Every single person in my school senior year had to take this class called humanities. It was essentially philosophy. Every single unit was based on a different piece of text that we eventually had to culminate into a 50-page paper at the end of the year called The Good Life. And we had to essentially claim what we think constitutes to a good life. It was fascinating. Man, you Midwesterners. You you Midwesterners are so kind. Kansas, take us back to Kansas. (laughs) Underrated place, let me tell you. But there's one piece of text that I always go back to when we talk about this. And it was a piece of work called The Riddle of Inequality. And this piece of philosophy essentially explores the dichotomy between why you were born into a certain situation versus why someone else was born into a completely different set of circumstances. And this piece of work essentially posits that the reason that you are born into whatever environment, family, socioeconomic status, environment that you are brought into the world in it, it isn't necessarily about understanding that circumstance. It's understanding what you are supposed to do with that circumstance. And that piece of work, I think, helped contextualize for me that every single person was brought into this world with a completely unique set of circumstances, whether that be identity, whether that be ge- geographic region of origin. And those things really impact each person's worldview. And every time... I now think back to those moments where I was met with ignorance or met with hate. I, I for some reason now have a certain set of empathy or a certain sense of understanding for that person because I believe that that person only held that view because of the way that they were raised or, or something that they were taught or something about their unique set of circumstances that led them to that point of view. And I think now in the work that I do with the conversationalist, I am essentially just trying to help people understand each other's unique set of circumstances that led them to this perspective. Because if we can understand that, then we have some sort of baseline of where to go from here. So I think it requires a certain sense of empathy and realizing that so much of who we are is a summation of our experiences and what we're taught and what we see and what we consume. And sometimes that that isn't in our control based on how we're raised. So once I gain that empathy, it's much easier for me to zoom out and see the forest from the trees. That's it. Understanding the circumstances of people to better understand why they believe what they believe. Now, I can already hear some of the audience saying, Manu, I want you to ask, I want you to ask, this seems like Sophie's got a very positive view of human nature. This seems like that implies a certain belief that people fundamentally just some people all people fundamentally deserve to be heard that people seem to be redeemable right that it almost seems like you're giving people the chance to be better um should that sense of optimism and belief in human nature be extended to everybody and and importantly again the thorny question comes if not how do you draw the line Where do I even start? I mean, this is what you and I talk about offline all the time. I I think it depends on the context, right? 
I think it's easy to make a blanket, a blanket statement right now that every person deserves to be heard. But I do believe that there are caveats to that. However, I think we need to acknowledge the, the sandbox, the playing field that we're working within. And it, to me, that purview is America. And if we are going to work within the American framework, we have to acknowledge free speech and that free speech exists. And if we are going to abide by the First Amendment, then we have to extend that ability to be heard to every single person because that is inscribed into the Constitution. However, in the work that I do at The Conversationalist, we are not the government. We have created our own private community. We've we've carved out our own space on the internet and in real life where we can play by our own rules. We're able to make up a space based on what we think will best suit the world that we're trying to build. So when we created our own set of guidelines, our own 10 commandments, if you will, we drew the line at what we felt would best set up our community to actually find that understanding and empathy that we just spoke about. And for me, that line comes very clearly in the sand when someone is advocating for the physical harm of or the blatant dislike of someone or a group of people. And that is when I think we're unable to actually come to the table. If you can't see me as a human being in the same way that I see you as a human being, I feel that there's not a way to find a pathway forward. Granted, I think that person is still worth speaking to and fostering some sort of connection to, but you have to be able to draw the line somewhere. And for me, all of the work that I do is rooted in this theory called contact theory, which essentially posits that the more access to viewpoints, perspectives, and people who come from a different set of values or identity markers as you, the more we're able to actually foster that tolerance, empathy, and understanding, and the data shows. So if we're unable to even foster that basic foundation of contact theory, where I am allowed to be me and you are allowed to be you, and I have respect for you in the same way you should have respect for me, then I don't think we can fully build the world that I want to build. So I think I've I'm, maybe I'm becoming jaded a little bit living in New York City now. I mean, I've still got the the Kansas optimism, but I think what I've learned over the past four years today is actually our fourth birthday as a platform. Big congratulations. That's, it's, it's very difficult to, to build something the way that you've built it and deeply admire your work. I mean... Manu, I'm your biggest fan. But all of that to say, I think it's important to recognize that as we try to build these bridges in the world and bring people closer together, I don't think this work will ever be for everyone as much as we want it to be. And I definitely learned that the hard way and thinking that we could all hold hands and sing kumbaya and come to the table and unify. I've, I've kind of checked myself to some degree and only trying to focus on that quote unquote hopeful majority. Because if we can start somewhere with that basic understanding of what we're trying to do, we'll make a greater impact than trying to make what we're doing for everyone. Have you thought about, I'm sure you have, but I'm just curious why you think of, why, why let's say you describe yourself as a unifier. Um, I'm curious uh, whether you see unity as the end goal and if so, why? I have so many questions for you. This is really hard being hey, on the other uh, end of uh, the, the, you, the You mic. do this for a full time. You're, you're, get, you're getting platformed. I'm platforming Sophie Barron. <laughs> oh my gosh, Manu. I, <laughs> where do I even start? So 
A lot of my understanding of who I am has come from understanding that I am a unifier, which means that I feel like I was put on this earth with a specific mission of bringing people closer together. I think that is what I was put on this earth to do. And in trying to build this movement, this world where we can unify, I've also had to recontextualize, if that's even a word, or redefine what unity means. And oftentimes when we hear unity, or even what we hear the president of the United States stating when he's trying to unify us back together, I have a little bit of a different understanding. So bear with me for a moment, because this may sound a little crunchy granola, but I... I believe right now that the thing that is plaguing us most in our country is the onset of the echo chamber. Whether we want to believe it or not, we are all trapped inside different silos based on the information we're exposed to, the people we surround ourselves with, and the communities that we were brought up in. And I fully believe that if we can have some sort of dialogue where I get to share a point of view while you also get to share yours, the walls of those chambers, those caves, those silos will slowly start to dissolve. And that is what I'm trying to do. Because if we can break down the walls of our individual chambers, we in theory are closer together. Because right now, those are the walls dividing us. Those were the walls dividing me from my classmates growing up, because we never spoke about the things that we were struggling with. But had we been able to share and create that exchange of ideas where there was actual listening involved, we would be able to to step outside of those caves and actually hear one another. So when I think of unity, I'm trying to think of a world where we can all have that exchange back and forth with people who are seemingly different from us. Because if that exchange can be fostered in a very specific way, those walls will come tumbling down and will therefore be closer together. So building a unified world to me is not necessarily trying to bring us all into the same notion of thinking, because I never, ever believe that that can happen. I think what we're trying to do is allow us to coexist in a healthy way, not because we have to, but because we want to. And I think that's only possible when we foster that space where we can actually have that exchange of ideas. It's interesting. So it's it's almost like creating the the groundwork for us to build a world in which we can better understand each other. So it's not so much, hey, let's hold hands and and sing kumbaya. Let's 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 get into a chorus together and praise whatever we got to praise. But it's more, hey, let's let's till the soil so that you and I can at least see each other on the same level to maybe get to a better starting point. That's interesting. That's interesting. It's like a. Uh, you're you're breaking down the cavernous walls and then like we're building bridges across those walls. <laughs> exactly, because I don't think you can build a bridge until people can step outside of those silos, right? And I think dialogue is the way that you foster the bridge. So while I think a lot of the work that we do lays the groundwork, a huge piece of what we also do is fostering that conversation. But the work that we're doing kind of posits that you can't get to that conversation until we can establish some sort of breaking of that echo chamber. So I want to, I want to, uh, towards the end of the conversation, we'll, I'll take it more directly to America on 4th of July. And you already yeah. invoked the fact that you think this is one of the biggest challenges, but I have to ask you out of a spirit of both honesty and just the fact that the, we, we, we get to the, get to the core of some of these issues. Like some days you must be pulling your hair out doing this work (laughs) all the time, all the time. It's incredibly frustrating work. And I think that's why we're so lucky to have a reset every day. Cause I try to get out of bed every day on the right foot. 
But there are moments where it just really tests you, you know, because there's a lot, there's a lot of friction. You know, people don't want to come together. We're essentially trying to change human behavior and cultural change does not happen overnight. I mean, how, how do you grapple with that? I think two things. One, I have, I have a feeling that you and I are going to have eerily similar answers to this. Um, I, I almost sometimes think of think of think of you and others in this work as brothers and sisters, and you're definitely a bigger sister doing this work. And so, you know what? When I think about the challenge, I would say two things. One is actually having conversations like this with people like you. Honestly, whether two people watch this podcast, my mom watches this podcast, or thousands of people watch this podcast, part of the reason why we're building the hopeful majority is because I think it gives me the renewable energy and fuel to surround myself with people that are willing to challenge and push my thinking, but also importantly, to push the walls of those echo chambers. Like having this conversation with you is fuel. I don't take this moment for granted at all, even though I'm sitting in a mop bucket, right? Um, <laughs> secondarily is as, and I know this one, this, this answer you and I both share is the people that we actually work with, you know, the, the, I've made some of my best friends doing this work. Frankly, I think, you know, last year I was giving a, a commencement speech to this school, high school in, um, in, in the Bay and all these kids were graduating. And one of the questions that kept coming up was when people are building ventures, well, you must be motivated all the time. The fact is that's a myth. What actually gets me going is the fact that I work with some people that I love and importantly, the students, the student leaders, I'm sure you've got some amazing, I mean, we know some folks that we could even name off the top of our heads, like Claire Ashcraft and Noah Hugie and all those different students and young people. Um, that's what keeps me going. I'd say. I mean, that's the best possible answer. And I think it comes in small doses, right? For, for me, I think what renews my, my hope, if you will, is when I'm actually back in the trenches doing the work, doing the things that remind me of why I started this or the little moments where other people are reminding me of that as well. And I know another person that you and I both share and love is Noelle Fitchett. And yesterday I got a text from her and it was a photo of her on Capitol Hill with Maxwell Frost. And I thought that was a beautiful photo because she reached out to me and said, Maxwell says hi. And it was a photo of the two of them. And for those of you who don't know Noelle, highly recommend following her. She's an amazing conservative influencer who's now working in politics, going that way. Um, also finishing up her master's. Um, and I, I reached out and I said, wow, I'm sure the two of you are having amazing conversations. And she said back to me, thank you so much for empowering me to have these conversations. And in what world would I have ever pictured Noelle having a conversation with Maxwell who the two of them are on very different sides of the spectrum. But I think the work that I am trying to do is inspiring those moments. It's less so about how can you navigate a conversation in a room with me, but how can you go out into your own world, into your own community and foster those spaces on your own? So that was another moment that I think amidst a pulling out of my hair kind of day that reminded me of why I do what I do. You should follow Noelle. You should also follow me. Please follow me, the hopeful majority with Manu Meal. Please, please follow me. I, I'm currently at a, at a at a rock solid 620 followers. It goes plus and minus every day, Sophie. One, two, you never you never know, and it depends. I think it I think it's the algorithms. You know, one day they wake up on the good side of the bed, and they're like, you know what? 
<laughs> we're going to give him a new two more followers. <laughs> I love it. You, you need to do consistent yeah. ads throughout your episodes. You know, you yeah. are yeah. your own sponsor. I, in, ca- in, case, in case you forgot, you know, hopeful majority with my new meal. You know, what's great <laughs> about Noel is, uh, and Maxwell and, when you think about David Hogg and you think about some of the other people in our generation, folks like Charlie Kirk, it seems like our generation is pretty plugged in. And, you know, yesterday uh, I was having this conversation again with that friend at dinner and uh, a week ago, Sophie, I wanted to share this with you actually, independent of the podcast, but now I have the opportunity to. I was walking through the Capitol. It was like 11 p.m. at night. For the record, I didn't break in. <laughs> it was it was literally, we were getting an after-night tour from a former member of Congress. Like night at the museum, but um, night, night at the, at the, at the museum. Oh, my God. It was one of the most somber, exper- somber, not in a negative way, somber in a sense of responsibility way. So we're walking through, mm-hmm. right? It's 11 p.m. We get to the rotunda. Um, stand under the rotunda. It's just me, totally quiet for a quick second. Everybody else went to their other sort of like hallways. They continued the tour. I looked up and what I saw was there's that beautiful mural that depicts Lady Liberty fighting and and sort of challenging sort of the 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 folks that are negative in our society. And then you look around all these statues and something keeps uh, stuck out to me in that specific moment which was, you know, our founding fathers, like when they actually built this country, when they built those ideals that oftentimes fall short, as many of our friends would argue, and some would argue are, are the best ideals that guide humanity. I distinctly remember I was looking at it, I was like, you know, some of these folks were 18, 20, 25. Thomas Jefferson, tomorrow, 248 years ago, uh, was uh, 31, if I remember correctly. It seems like our generation's pretty engaged politically, or at least there seems to be a lot of folks that that seem to be involved. Do you think that is the case? And and importantly, what would you tell our generation if you could to do differently? The the one if if because we're always trying to push, right? What is that one thing that you'd say, hey, do do this better? I think it's absolutely correct. However, I don't wanna I don't want to say that I think every single member of our generation equally cares and wants to get involved. I think our generation has a unique awareness to the world around us and the issues that we're facing because of the unique set of circumstances that we were brought into the world. I think, you know, from having gone through so many life shattering events, growing up in the era of, you know, incredible isolation, a global pandemic, an epidemic of school shootings, um, I think Gen Z has a unique awareness and I think that awareness hopefully inspires them into action. But I think time and time again, seeing the government not necessarily address the issues that we're seeing is I think leading Gen Z to feel a little bit out of touch. A lack of deliverance on behalf of our institutions, you're saying? Yes, absolutely. So what I, and again, I don't know all the answers, but I think what I would encourage Gen Z to do differently is to not get swept up into this narrative of the binary. I think we're always taught to think of left, right, red, blue, black, white, up, down. And I really think that Gen Z, just by mere, mere nature of the fact that we're the most diverse generation to date, I think we have a unique sense to hold two truths at once. And I think right now the issue that I'm seeing most that I'm getting so frustrated by is that a lot of people are conflating certain things that I think are not left or right, but are just basic right or wrongs as 
bipartisan politics um, or partisan, sorry, excuse me, partisan politics. And I, I think right now, and I've maybe talked to you about this before, but I think what I've noticed is that there isn't necessarily a split in our generation between left and right, but rather a split between people who think we should work within the system we've got and the other faction that thinks that we need to burn it all to the ground and rebuild. So I hope that our generation will reject what has not worked in this sense of the binary, but recognize what we do share and use that to build the foundation of the world we want to live in. And I think we owe it to ourselves and the future generations to actually act upon that. And I think we're seeing it with Maxwell, with other amazing Gen Z candidates, um, who are actually now going out to put that into action. So I, I hope that we can start to reject that traditional partisan divide. Reject that left-right binary, those sort of different sort of binary aspects of thinking because we need to sort of build that future. It's interesting that you par- you posit sort of one of the key divides in our generation being between people that want to complete break it all down burn it all down and people that are interested in reform and sort of step-by-step progress and step-by-step change what do you think animates the people in those two different camps um Mm. what what do you think drives people to go one way or the other it's hard to know completely but i think I mean, this, I'm going to be honest, this is one that I'm still thinking on and figuring out, but I think there's, I think there's just a really amazing idealism that Gen Z holds in knowing that we were afforded the privilege of growing up in a time without a lot of strife that maybe our parents or grandparents faced. So we have the ability to think of our perfect world. And I think oftentimes Gen Z feels that that perfect world can be rebuilt. But I think there are also a lot of pragmatists that are growing up on the coattails of those older generations because the path was carved out for us in thinking that we need to reform. We need to work within what we've got because fundamentally, we know that we've got a good thing going, right? You know, America is the greatest experiment, but I think there are a lot of people in our generation who accept that and want to hold on to that. But I think ultimately, what I've noticed, I guess, to tie it all together is that there are some people who genuinely feel that even though on paper, America is good and is a democracy and is what we should be striving for, the way that it was built was never built for everyone. So I think I'm noticing a lot of people in our generation feeling that in order to actually build that system, we need a completely new one that's built from the right intentions. What about last you? week's last week's episode, yeah, last week's episode, we uh, I specifically talked about uh, answering the question. Each episode tries to focus on a question. So last week's question was, "Is America the greatest country in the world?" And I actually responded uh, to that with "No," and then immediately followed that with, "I think it's the most ambitious experiment in the history of humanity because with ambition comes a lot of opportunity and a lot of setback." And the fact is, I think. You know, Sophie, as you know, I grew up in a village in India for the first five years of my life after I was born in New Jersey, lived with my parents, then came back, then moved around a bunch. What's so interesting about this place, especially as we reflect on the 4th of July, is like 
why one of the binaries I'm trying to tackle and take down is like, why is it that we live in this moment where you either have to love the place or hate the place? Because from my understanding, and you just got, again, congratulations, you just got engaged. I would assume as a rookie, as a rookie on the sidelines of the game of love, that love means you both admire and critique, that you hold somebody's flaws so that they can get better, and importantly, you admire them so that they see you as somebody that they can trust and believe and care about, that love is not just 100% admiration or 100% critique, that it it is a two-sided coin. Why does our generation seem to be falling into this binary of critique, 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 or admire, admire, admire? I don't know if this is a fair statement, but I really think that we are just inheriting what older generations have laid out for us. I think that binary thinking is something that we have been taught from a young age. It's how we're raised. It's how we're educated. And I don't think, at least I wasn't brought up from an understanding that there can be multiple truths. And I think the more we can expose people to that idea from a younger age, even as they navigate their personal relationships, like you mentioned, will be far better off. But I, I, not to place blame on older generations because we're, we're able to hold ourselves accountable and, you know, create a new path. I do think that a lot of times Gen Z gets discredited for inheriting a world that was kind of already laid out for us. Would you but say I, I'm still yeah. I'm still thinking yeah. on it. Like I don't know if that's 100% the answer, but I think the the last thing I'll say is if we're striving to change something that has been the norm for centuries, I don't think that will happen overnight. I think in the same way that now we're seeing Roe v. Wade be overturned, it's going to take years to kind of change the culture that comes with that or to undo certain systems that we've been a part of. So I think in changing this notion of the binary or changing our ability to love and critique America, I think it will take just as much time or even that time cut in half to undo that way of thinking because it's been so enmeshed into our society. So I know we're, we're almost on time, but just one question I have to ask you, and then I've got, I've got, one last question for you, but the question I have to ask you is you mentioned this word change a lot. You mentioned mm-hmm. that it seems like we're going somewhere. You know, what does change mean to you? Like, what what is that? It just says belonging was a word that we threw around a lot. When you say change, what does that entail? What does that involve? And are we speaking about change in the larger sense of the world or on an individual level? Let's talk about it in the context of just America. You know, sure. um, because that's, I think, the, the context of this conversation. Sure. When I think about change, and it's, it's interesting that you ask me this, because every Monday night in our community, we host a live conversation about a very interesting question similar to, is America the greatest country in the world? And this week, we asked ourselves the question, can people change? And I think when we think about America, we need to think about the people who comprise it, because that is how we create change. That is how movements are built. And I personally believe that people fundamentally do not change, but people can evolve. And I think it's important that we are empowering people to constantly evolve their ways of thinking as you work through why you are the way you are, what led you to this moment where you are now, and where you want to go from here. 
Because if we can encourage that growth mindset that we can evolve, things can look different from the way they always were, I think that can create a larger cultural shift. So when I think of change, I would challenge us to reframe the notion of change into thinking of how we can all evolve because humans have immense capacity to reframe or open their minds. But ultimately, I think it's incredibly challenging to change people's perceptions or bring them over to your side. So let's empower one another to open our minds. People can evolve. My follower count can evolve. This is fascinating. There's a, that's such an interesting, and I know we're almost on time, so I don't want to keep pushing. Um, let me ask you the last question. Every guest gets asked this question. Um, and the reason why I asked this question, because I didn't explain it the last episode, uh, and people are curious, is because I think to have hope and to have a sense of purpose, I think you need to have the answer to a question, why? I think people are craving a sense of belonging, to your point. I think people are, cra- forget politics, people are craving a sense of nor- a direction, North Star, and I think it's helpful for people that come on the show to explain what their why is. Um, and I think you've touched on this a little bit, but what is your why? At the end of the day, I believe that every single person simply wants to feel seen, heard, valued, and understood. And I think so much of my understanding of that came from growing up in a world where I didn't feel those four things together. And in my life, I have found that my my greatest why in bringing people together is giving them that gift of feeling seen, heard, valued, and understood. Because if you can give that to one person, they are so much more likely to go out and give it to the next person. And I find this a lot of times in the hard conversations I'm fostering at the conversationalist, because the more you can hear someone else and make them feel heard, they are 20 times more likely to give that back to you, which is how we create that unified world that I'm striving for. So behind everything that I do and believing that everyone has a voice, I think it's so important that we use those voices to not only make our ideas heard, but to give that gift to someone else because that's the ripple effect. And if we can make every single person feel that they are valued, they deserve a seat at the table, they have a voice they will then more likely go use that voice to listen to others. So I would well, say that's that's my way. Well, Sophie, I know uh, in in the way that you do a lot of this work that you would naturally ask me what is my why, but we will hold that uh, for one day. Us? I know I'm just gonna I'm just gonna hold you in suspense. I'm gonna hold the hopeful majority oh, in suspense. Man. But importantly, I want you to know that I deeply appreciate your gift of of the conversations that you empower a lot of people to have. And and for anybody in the audience that's both highly critical of some of the points that Sophie's made, or also importantly, uh, feels like this sometimes can feel like a crunching granola conversation as you identified. But when you think about some of the most effective change makers in the 20th century from you know, Gandhi and the salt marches to MLK in the 60s and Mandela in South Africa, the backbone of a lot of this work has been being open-minded and being tolerant, not to be complicit, but to create space. And it's fascinating that you're thinking about, again, change, not as some tangible act of change, but as an evolution. Fourth of July, tomorrow, so grateful for you to be here, Sophie Barron. Um, and to everybody listening, have a safe, happy 4th of July. And importantly, just take a moment and think about what we can do to add to the hopeful majority. 
Thank you, Sophie. And if you can, start a conversation because you never know where it'll go. Where can they start conversations? I mean, start right in your backyard at your dinner table. If you're going out today for 4th of July for a barbecue or a gathering, start conversations there with the people who you know and trust and love. And then find communities like Bridge, like the Conversationalist, where you can then be in community with others who have the same desire to start those conversations with you. We've got a hopeful majority to build. It's time to fight outrage and build nuance. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you. If you enjoyed that conversation, please leave a like on YouTube, subscribe on YouTube, leave a review on Spotify or Apple. That matters because we're trying to elevate the majority of us that want to have conversations, that want to have dialogues. Importantly, those of us that want to listen to each other, not for the purpose of goodwill, but for the purpose of actually building the best America possible. Remember, every week, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, we're there. We're building that hopeful majority. Next week, very, very special episode with an amazing cast of characters, some of my best friends actually leading the organization that I help lead called Bridge USA. Join us because importantly, we've got to fight outrage and build nuance. See you next week.